Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Already in the week of St. Patrick's Day. Too bad it's not going to be Thursday when the weather is supposed to be pretty nice. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am fortunate to be here today again with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. We got lots of weekend news to talk about. Let's talk about it. Youths are not supposed to be able to bet on sports in Ohio, but since sports betting was legalized in January, many are finding ways to get in on the action. Laura, how's that happening and what can be done about it? Well, sports betting obviously is hugely popular. We've talked about the $1.1 billion in bets in January, and this is on an app on your phone, which makes it incredibly accessible and normal seeming. And to young people whose prefrontal cortex is not completely developed and they haven't thought through everything, they are more likely to be addicted to gambling. And I understand if you want to gamble, you got to be 21. And there are things in place to stop kids from gambling. You got to put your social security number in. I believe there's credit card, they do checks, but there's nothing to say that a kid couldn't use their parents. And uh, Gretchen Kuda Crowen did a pretty deep dive on this, found that a lot of kids are doing that, that 60 to 80% of high school high schoolers say they've gambled for money in the last year, four to six are addicted to gambling. And you compare that to the problem gambling in adults, which is about 1%. So this is really something you've got to think about. And also, even for people who are 21 and up, not necessarily prefrontal cortex all done too. So college kids, <laughs> legally, um, young adults, this is something to be concerned about. Yeah, that was the the fact that stood out to me is, if you're getting people to start this in their 20s, you might be altering their brains so that they feel addicted to it, which is terrible if that's really what is happening here. If you are creating a generation of problem gamblers because they're gambling while their brains are developing, what, what can you do about it later? Right. And think about how accessible it is, right? Before you had to go to a casino to gamble and even, or, you know, or a racino, and you had to physically be there. And, and a college campus wasn't next door to that. Now you could literally be walking to class and gamble on your phone. And, and it's probably, I mean, I, I look at my 12 year old and obviously he's not gambling, but I look at him with a phone and his Pokemon Go app and his Stumble Guys and whatever. Like he can't control himself. We actually pointed out this story to him and talked about his Xbox and how it's similar because they, it's just, it's hard to tear themselves away. I, I would think that this will become a problem. Wisconsin, Virginia, North Carolina, they recently passed laws requiring gambling education in schools. Other states, they're attempting to pass legislation um, on gambling gambling education has actually failed. I do want to point out that Ohio is trying to police the marketing of gambling. Remember, a couple of companies have gotten stiff fines for advertising to college students or setting up near where kids under 21 are. So I think they're trying. But 2% of the state's 10% gambling tax revenue is earmarked for prevention. And we don't know if it's going to be used for programs specifically designed for kids. Yeah, we asked Gretchen to tackle this story because we heard 
anecdotally from parents among our readership who are saying, hey, kids are doing this. And then in our own newsroom, all of a sudden people popped up and said people they knew in their 20s were using this quite a bit, it, it, that it was kind of the rage with younger people. It's a good story. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. Is Sherwin-Williams guilty of the same offenses that Ohio has accused dollar stores of, charging more for products than the prices on the shelf say? How might the Cleveland-based coatings company be in expensive trouble, Layla? Well, in a federal lawsuit, uh, Sherwin-Williams is accused of tacking on a 4% so-called supply chain surcharge at the register to make up for the increase in supply chain costs that have made the cost of doing business skyrocket. This lawsuit is seeking class action status, and it's one of several across the country against Sherwin-Williams. Others have been filed in Florida, New York, for example. But according to the court filing, Sherwin-Williams president and CEO John Morricus in, in September of 2021 publicly told investors that manufacturing costs were rising. And the accusation is that Sherwin-Williams wanted to uniformly increase their prices, but they wanted to create the appearance that their prices are low to retain customers and their tactics give the company an unfair advantage over honest sellers that would just increase their prices to uh, make up for those supply chain uh, costs. And the lawsuit seeks a judge to order the company to stop charging customers 4% and, and to make restitution of all money it made from the surcharge and to pay other damages and fees. I mean, I guess this is slightly different from the dollar store situation because it wasn't that that they were accused of surreptitiously charging more at the register than the price on the shelf that was well yeah the the scanner was putting up a higher price but it's not really if i go and i get my gallon of paint off the shelf and it says it's one price and then i go up and it rings up four dollars more or whatever it is that's that is the same i mean it's they could have some signs somewhere up by the register saying by the way we're going to gouge you for an extra four percent but if they're doing that why don't they just put it on the shelf i the lawsuit seems like it has merit and you do wonder attorney general dave yost went after dollar stores for a variation of this will he go after Sherwin That's a Williams good question. Stores. Yeah, it does feel like a sleazy move because people, you know, you shop around for the best prices. And if you see that Sherwin-Williams is is the uh, most affordable option, you would go with that. And you don't find out that you're wrong until you get to the register. You've already committed to, to your paint. So uh, this is problematic for them. Well, we've all seen price hikes because of supply chain problems, but they're in the right, prices. Right. I mean, anybody that's gone to a Home Depot knows that, wow, stuff has gotten more expensive, but it's in the price. So it's honest. This, this feels dishonest. It does. It's totally dishonest. Not a good look for the Cleveland-based company. Maybe they ought to rethink their customer relations. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are some reasons that prosecutors might have chosen not to call First Energy executives to testify in the trial of Larry Householder? First Energy, after all, pleaded guilty as a corporate entity to bribing the officials, yet we did not hear from any people. Lisa? Yeah, and of course, their names were on the lips of many people who testified in the House Bill 6 trial. That would be a former First Energy CEO, Chuck Jones, lobbyist Mike Dowling, and Energy Harbor Executive Chair John Kiani, none of whom have been indicted or 
or anything in this case. So we talked to a few different law experts. Uh, Case Western Reserve University law lecturer Mike Benza says they probably would have pled the Fifth Amendment to almost every question they were asked. And he said, honestly, that would have been a sideshow that would have distracted from the prosecution's case. And they also said that they might be using householders' conviction to compel testimony in other cases or to get others to talk to prosecutors. They say, oh, wow, you know, householder was found guilty. Maybe I better talk. Uh, Former Ohio Attorney General Mark Dan says the Department of Justice has become weak on white-collar crime, and he feels like they've lost their ability to take on large corporations and lost the skill to try such cases. And he also says that some, you know, they might fear taking on these big cases that they may lose or they don't want to antagonize the law firms for the defendants because they might want to work at that law firm in the future. Um, I'll stop there. Well, that one, Dan's thought was really quite worrisome. If they're not charging these folks because they might want to get jobs with the law firms to represent them, that would be terrible because you Mm -hmm. should fulfill your duty. If, if it's really because they're afraid to go up against high quality lawyers that these guys have hired, that's kind of silly too. The evidence convicted householder, the company has pleaded guilty. They've got them. I mean, the, the Sam Randazzo is another guy that, you know, with the evidence against him, they've got a case. I, I suspect that they didn't need them to, to get the conviction. The case against mm-hmm. householder was so strong that why risk it with a hostile witness, which is what another attorney wrote to us. Um, it, it, but it is, it is the question. It, you know, if, if the people who were bribed have now pleaded guilty or been convicted, the people who paid the bribes need to have justice. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. I mean, you know, some have also speculated that maybe these guys and others in First Energy are perhaps next to be indicted and they didn't want to like ruin the case that they had and, you know, and using the evidence from this trial to build a bigger case against First Energy. We have, a, I mean, Tyler Furman wore a wire. There's a lot of recordings. There's a lot of text messages, then evidence that's pretty damning. Well, when the feds went after the whole Cuyahoga County corruption deal more than a decade ago, they didn't just get the politicians that took the money. They went after the people that paid the money. You've got to think that's the next step. If they don't go after the sources of the money, people are going to believe that their government is somehow broken. And and, and if I were Larry Householder and company, I would think this is unfair. You know, I'm being convicted Mm -hmm. for taking the bribes. Why aren't they being convicted for paying them? It's a great story that we ran over the weekend. Gets into all the details. It's very well put together. Uh, Just a terrific read uh, by the the team in the Statehouse. You're listening to Today in Ohio. An Ohio Supreme Court justice with a big conflict of interest has to remove himself from considering the challenge to the heartbeat bill on abortion and has to be replaced. Did Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy simply name somebody else with another conflict of interest, Laura? This is a good story from Laura Hancock, and the answer is yes. Supreme Court Ju- Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy, she's a Republican, she appointed Ohio 12th District Court of Appeals Judge Matthew Byrne. He is a Warren County Republican who served on the advisory board of Pregnancy Center East in Cincinnati. So Ohio has a 
more than a hundred of these centers that are usually affiliated with faith organizations, and they attempt to dissuade pregnant women from having abortions. They do offer ultrasounds and other resources for, for pregnant people. And the legislature has given crisis pregnancy centers tens of millions of dollars in taxpayer money over the years, but they are not regulated. So the reason that Kennedy had to appoint Byrne is because the Supreme Court Justice Joe Dieters had to recuse himself. He was named a defendant in the case while he served as the Hamilton County prosecutor, which honestly might seem like less of a conflict than the replacement judge. I This is kind of astounding. Sharon Kennedy should know better. And this is a court, let's face it, where Mike DeWine's son didn't recuse himself from a big case involving his father. Kennedy apparently was all right with that. I, I just, why why cook the books? If you believe in the case, if you believe that that you can do this, why do you have to stack the deck by getting somebody with such a clear, clear anti-abortion background? That's a very good question. I, I, I don't know. Dif- what a difference between Sharon Kennedy and her predecessor, um, Maureen O'Connor. I, I just, Maureen O'Connor would never have done this, would never no. have picked somebody with a clear conflict of interest to replace somebody that had a conflict of interest. If this is what the Supreme Court's going to be under Sharon Kennedy, we're in for some very bad days because well, this I, is wrong. You shouldn't do it. Everybody knows you shouldn't do it. And she did it anyway. And this is not her first controversial action involving abortion cases. When she was an associate justice in February 2018, she was in the 5-2 majority that ruled against a Toledo abortion clinic. And that was after she had spoken at a greater Toledo Right to Life event a year earlier. And what she said, because she didn't recuse herself, she said she routinely talks to civic organizations. I would argue a Right to Life group is very different from the Chamber of Commerce or City Council. It's sad because the Supreme Court up until now really wasn't another crooked branch of the government, but it's starting to look like all the branches of government are having problems. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are thousands upon thousands of people in Northeast Ohio going to have to learn a new medical record system after spending the last three or four years getting used to follow my health? Layla, why is University Hospitals changing this? Yeah, it probably is an inconvenience for some who have a harder time adapting to to new technologies. But it sounds like it will be an an improvement overall, especially for those who are managing their health care across multiple hospital systems. But UH is is discontinuing use of the My UH Care Patient Portal, and they're transitioning patient records to UH My Chart. My chart lets patients uh, message their healthcare providers or view their medical records, manage appointments and request refills, and, and they can access the health records of their kids or other adults with their permission. Primary care appointments now will appear in UH My Chart and show as canceled in My UH Care. And the transition should be complete by the end of September, but more than 28,000 patients have already activated their MyChart accounts. Of course, the Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health use MyChart to help patients manage their health care and access their records. And if patients are using the Epic generic MyChart app, they can access records across all three hospital systems through the same portal. Yeah, follow my health is terrible. So getting rid of it, probably a good thing. It's not a a good system whatsoever. I just think of people in their 80s who have spent three years getting used to it, now having to switch. It's going to cause them conniptions. This wasn't rolled out in any kind of public way, right? We 
we heard about this and had to hunt it down ourselves. Yeah, it sounds like patients with recent appointments were sent emails notifying them about this change. But really, my chart is very user-friendly. I mean, when you look at it, it's it's hard. I can imagine, I mean, older adults certainly would, would have find it challenging to change platforms at a moment's notice, but it's so easy to use. It's just so intuitive. So I think this is a this was a smart move. Or is this the way that UH gets in on what the clinic's doing, which is an easier way to bill patients for time doctors spend that on definitely their struck chart. me too i was going to throw in the, the <laughs> disclaimer that if you're going to use my chart to message your your providers beware <laughs> beware uh mm. uh patients they might charge you <laughs> well oh, i goodness sakes i don't think follow my health had that mechanism available and so now if uh is just using it to get more money that that would explain the change. I, but just like the clinic did a terrible job rolling out that it was going to charge people for those, they, they did not have That's a true. good spin on that because they have legitimate reasons for doing so. UH should have done the same thing here. They should have come out and said, okay, everybody, we're going to be changing this. It's going to be a year-long transition. We're here to help. Here's simple instructions, all that kind of thing. And no, there's nothing. I mean, they basically notified patients with appointments coming up, but they have not rolled it out in a way that that people don't get worried. It's just a terrible, terrible rollout. To be fair, though, I mean, honestly, do you really want to hit your entire patient base at the same time? I mean, I got the email because I have an upcoming appointment. So I, I it, you can kind of see this as maybe like a soft rollout. I, I wouldn't go so hard in them because I've worked at a hospital where we had to roll out a, a system like that. And, and it's you have to do it in phases. Did you did you switch over? Did you have any complications? I, I haven't tried. I just got the email on Friday. I haven't tried it yet. I'm going to try it today. Well, I know somebody that tried to do it and had complications. Really? So we'll have to see how others do it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The conviction of former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder last week in the big corruption case is not the end of the road in the probe. We have a lot of avenues. This thing is still traveling. Lisa, what are some of them? Yeah, multiple investigations ongoing. Um, As for Larry Householder, the case is pending with the Ohio Ethics Commission on his alleged use of campaign funds to pay for his legal defense. Attorney General Dave Yost has a civil suit that's seeking damages from House Bill 6 actors, including Householder, uh, Chuck Jones, Mike Dowling, and First Energy. That's currently on hold. But he has asked Franklin County Common Pleas Judge Chris Brown to resume this proceeding four times, most recently after the verdict last week. Sam Randazzo, uh, you know, First Energy admitted paying him $22 million in consulting fees over a decade and $4.3 million just before he became the chair of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio in 2019. He was added to Yost's civil suit in 2021. And remember, Yost tried to freeze $8 million of uh, Randazzo's assets because he was afraid he was a flight risk or he was going to try to hide the money. And there are four pending investigations within PUCO that are on hold by prosecutor requests because they were concerned it would interfere with their federal investigation. But that's paused for at least six months. So we don't know what's going to happen there. The Securities and Exchange Commission began probing First Energy in September 2020. And they've been quiet, but they did issue a new subpoena last summer. So that's ongoing. And there are 
two shareholder lawsuits from First Energy shareholders. One has a pending $180 million settlement, which needs approval from a second judge. And then there's a class action suit by the Los Angeles County Employee Employee Retirement Association. Dave Yosef has came out right away after the conviction with a press release basically saying, we want we want movement on what we're trying to do here. We're trying to protect the citizens of Ohio, and we've been blocked. It's time to move forward. So that puts it all back on our previous conversation, which is what's next with the federal investigation. Do they get those indictments? Um, so we'll have to see. There's a lot still out there that's up in the air. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the Greyhound bus terminal in Cleveland one known for its distinctive architecture in any danger? And if it stops being a bus terminal, where will people go to get the bus, Laura? Well, that's a really good question. I don't have an answer for the second part of your question. But the building's probably not going to be torn down. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. But it is in danger of not being a bus terminal anymore because this station, along with 30 other... 32 others were sold by the previous owner, Scotland-based first group, Connecticut-based real estate uh, investment firm called 20 Lake Holdings bought it. $1.72 million was the price tag for the 36,000 square foot building. And they don't want to operate a bus terminal. If someone wanted to lease it as a bus terminal, they said it's something they would consider. But I think the only, well, people know this building, right? It opened in 1948 to rave reviews. It's beautiful. It's curved. It's cool. Actually, I've walked past it dozens and dozens of times. I don't know that I've ever been inside of it. So I I guess I should do that before it's no longer a public building. And so if it does get developed, it could be really anything. There's no plans for it right now. If it's not a bus terminal anymore, that is a good question. Where would people go to get a bus? I guess this happened in Cincinnati, and they're operating in Arlington Heights, about eight miles north of downtown. There's not easy access to public transportation or other services. If you're going to have a bus station, a place to pick up passengers, you should have some benches. You should have some bathrooms, a ticket window. So that is a good question. Why, why did Graham decide to get rid of it? I, well, I don't think Greyhound owned it. It was a different Scottish company that had been leasing it, I guess, to Greyhound. So second, it was first group. I, I don't know. And so they sold it, and this new company is not interested in continuing that relationship? I think they, they said they would consider it, but it's not like they're saying, yeah, for sure, it's going to be a bus terminal. And, you know, it is... It's in a really pretty prime location in Cleveland on Chester, real close to a Playhouse Square. And as that area gets developed near CSU, maybe they see different uses for it. I mean, it's it's a lot of land, too, because of all those buses have to come in and out. Yeah, but if you're going, I mean, if you have a bus station, you've got to have it at a place where people can easily get to it. So having right. it in a central location makes a great deal of sense. I, I have no idea where they would go with it. Is there any talk in Cleveland about setting something up for this? There hasn't been any talk in Susan Glazer's story. Maybe they should tackle it when they tackle the Amtrak station, right? <laughs> like maybe they could make one station that would work for different modes of transportation. But you do need a lot of uh, space for all of the buses. Yeah. Must be distressing news for people that rely on Greyhound to get around. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the Cuyahoga County Council, which last year squandered more than $100 million on slush funds in the former Medical Mart, about to ask us for a tax increase for social services? 
Layla? It's, it's uncertain if they'll be asking for this increase, which, which I imagine would be really tough to swallow because at the outset, they told voters they wouldn't come back asking for an increase and also squandering. <laughs> but, it, <Right. laughs> but it appears that Cuyahoga County overspent $5 million of its health and human services levy dollars last year, and it's on track to overspend again this year. And there were multiple reasons for this. First, they gave $3.6 million in raises to the county's social workers because they were just not paying enough to compete with other social service agencies in the state, and they really needed to fill those jobs. Then they had to ink a $12.7 million contract to provide emergency beds for kids who had been staying nights at the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services office building. And then the county also pledged $5.8 million uh, through 2025 to, cr- to create child protection teams to better identify and support victims of abuse and prevent fatalities. 93% of that is being paid through levy dollars. And then importantly, the county has had to cover a shortfall in funding for the Say Yes Cleveland Family Support Specialists. These, these specialists are stationed within Cleveland schools to connect kids and their families with support services to help prevent them from becoming Department of Children and Family Services cases or, or becoming more entrenched with that system. But the real determinant of whether the county will need to seek a levy increase might just depend on what happens in the state legislature with House Bill 1. That's the bill that would flatten income taxes, give a tax break to the wealthiest taxpayers, and pay for it by eliminating the rollback for local governments. If that passes as written, it would mean a loss of $16 million in health and human services funding, and the county just can't afford that. You're talking like the only source of money for social services is the social service taxes. Isn't it the county have the ability to pay for services from its general well, fund? Well, yes, and the general fund is healthy. I mean, the revenues outpace spending even when you when you take out the, the American Rescue Plan Act money. The general fund ended 2022 with a cash balance of $344 million, and that's, you know, 194 if you eliminate ARPA contributions. And that was well above the cash requirement of $125 million. Uh, So, but I mean, Chris Renane said, you know, it's too early to say what's going to happen with the HHS levy. He, he said his budgeting process is starting soon. He kind of said, let's hold on and, and see see what we can do. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm thrown when the conversation is framed around the health, the health, and, health and human services tax doesn't have enough money for what we're spending because part of the county's job is to provide social services. We pay a lot of taxes that are not health and human services taxes to the county. And it seems like this is a little bit artificial in the way they're characterizing it. They have money. What, so why aren't they using it? And that's apart from the hundred plus million they squandered. That's right. It'll be interesting. I think they're going to have a hard time getting the tax through because they've been so irresponsible, but we'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is the LeBron James Family Foundation collaborating with Starbucks in Akron on something kind of unprecedented, Lisa? 
Yeah, this is actually the first time this has been done in the nation. So uh, they will be opening a Starbucks community store within House 330, which is a multi-use space with community programs within walking distance of the I Promise School Campus. So like I said, this will be the first of its kind. It will provide reimagined training program with emphasis on life skills. And physically, it will provide a sitting area for families and a seasonal outdoor patio for community gatherings. So House 330 or House 330, because that's the uh, area code of Akron, it's 60,000 square feet. It offers job training, financial literacy, meals, recreation, and more. But yeah, this is, and and of course, Starbucks is very excited to to do this unprecedented thing. I think it's a, it's a great way to show kids how to, you know, hold down a job and, and work with their money. And yeah, I think it's a great idea. Do you, do you think that they'll also teach them how to organize? Starbucks has been in the news quite a bit because its staff is organizing unions. And so I just throw that in facetiously. It's nice to see Starbucks getting some some positive news in Northeast Ohio because they have been taking it on the chin as they have fought so hard against having unions in their their coffee houses. Good story. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.